This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio. This is Trumpet Radio Live, 101.3 KPCG. And we're online at kpcg.fm, live link at thetrumpet.com. Today's Monday. This is the Monday edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Dwight Falk with you here today. Grant Turgeon is out of town. He is in Houston, Texas. Many of our listeners know there is a uh, personal appearance campaign by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. And uh, he is down there in Houston over the next day or so. So we'll be getting back with Grant here later in the week, but he's down there right now. And if uh, that's something you'd like to go to, a personal appearance campaign by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, and you're not uh, sure about that, how to do that, uh, subscribe to the Trumpet Magazine. And uh, those that subscribe to the magazine, they uh, get those invites to those personal appearance campaigns, which are hugely popular. Very exciting to uh, to go to those. And so if you are not a subscriber currently to the Trumpet Magazine, get that subscription for free. It's at thetrumpet.com. And you can sign up. And again, it's free, like everything is, all the literature, everything that's offered, it's free of charge. The cost has been covered, so you can sign up if you haven't done that. Yet, also, the Trumpet Briefs, that's a uh, email that gets sent out Monday through Friday, and it gives you a little synopsis of something going on on the Trumpet website. Quick read, a lot of great information there, free as well. Sign up for that at thetrumpet.com. Lots to do on today's program. It's going to be a fascinating program today. We have uh, an interview coming up with a uh, young lady who had a really remarkable experience. She went and visited a concentration camp, Dachau. You've heard of that camp, no doubt. Uh, Scene of horrific crimes, terrible atrocities. And she went and visited that. Of course, people can go and take take a tour we're going to talk to her about her experience there in Dachau. Also, I want to take a look at a topic that should really concern everyone, and I think it does on some level, yet it's easy to kind of not think about it, and that is the nuclear proliferation going on around the world. America is amping up its nuclear program again in some ways. Other nations are doing the same. What does that mean? What's happening and where is it happening And what does that mean for you? Very important topic. We're going to take a look at that and more coming up on today's edition, this Monday edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Well, if you're like me, you probably spent a little bit of time over the weekend watching some of the Olympic coverage. We have listeners for kpcg.fm all over the world. And so I'm sure a global audience has been watching and rooting for their their native uh, athletes to do their best. And it's always exciting to watch. There's there's so much inspiration and hope in an Olympics. People working very hard for a, a, a goal of a lifetime. And uh, they have one chance usually to either win or do their personal best or sometimes they, they fall and they fail. And so it really is um, inspiring and exciting and, and moving to watch. And yet there's always uh, some issues with the Olympics, too, this year in particular. There's political agendas that are being pushed. Uh, In the case of North Korea being involved, that's fairly questionable, to say the least. They're a dictatorial regime threatening the peace of the world, if you can call it a peace. I guess the temporary standoff that everyone has. And there's been some glowing reports of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's sister, and then other media outlets have condemned those reports, saying how could 
How could glowing reports be given of the leadership from North Korea? And so there's controversy there. And then just even as a parent watching the Olympics with my children, who are younger and very impressionable, and I have found that I have to sit right there with them and make sure that I'm keeping an eye on what's happening. Because the commercials that are, a lot of them are themed, they have an Olympic theme, but they're promoting some things that I don't agree with as a parent. They're promoting lifestyles uh, that they really have nothing to do with the overall ad or the commercial. I was just, I'm just, I've been floored really, honestly, to see some of these commercials where it's all about athletes and they're, they're being ins, uh, inspiring and trying to conquer and overcome obstacles. And then there's societal changes being thrown in there and being pushed at the families that are watching it. That it's okay, in the, in the case of the commercial I'm thinking of, for a small boy to want to buy a, a little princess doll and his dad's trying to yell at him and tell him he can't buy it. In the middle of a commercial about, I think it was about athletes besides that, and showing that, you know, when people tell you you can't do something, uh, you can go out and achieve your dreams. And then they throw something in like that, which is a, obviously a push at the, the breakdown of society and the biblical norms and the biblical instruction of how a family should be. It really, quite frankly, is outrageous to have to sit there and watch that during an Olympic competition. Not to mention some of the presenters and some of the performers as well. Times have changed, haven't they? They really have changed when you can't even really sit there and enjoy the purity, if you call it that, of just good heart Olympic athletic competition without having societal changes be pushed, be forced upon the families and the children watching it at home. It's really been quite something to see. And America has been leading the way. Make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today with your host, Stephen Flurry. He talks about a really important topic from over the weekend. You might have seen some of this, although with all the excitement and the coverage of the Olympics, it's kind of, I guess, maybe been pushed back a little bit. But Israel is in the midst of some conflict right now. Even the top story today on uh, some headlines, Drudge Report being one, says Israel warns Iran. There's related stories saying preparing for war, Israel boosts air defenses, confirms down jet hit by Syrian fire. Hezbollah says this is a new era. Iran drone, American stealth knockoff. What's going on there in the Middle East? There's not been as much media attention to it as there should be. And of course, as is pointed out on the Trump Daily Radio show today, a lot of that media coverage has been skewed. Skewed to make Israel look like they're the aggressor, to make Israel look like they're the ones that are stirring up trouble. There's a lot more to the story, and it's talked about today on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show. So make sure you listen for that. Headlines that you're not really going to get anywhere else, and you really need to understand what's happening there in the Middle East, as is brought out on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today. Christ did tell his people to watch and to pray, to pay attention to what's happening in the world, and uh, it takes more than just checking over the, the headlines because in a lot of cases they're not getting into the depth of what's happening or presenting it in an accurate uh, way. So make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today 
Israel and Iran. It's heating up there in the Middle East. And then also on the program today, I look at how to uh, overcome, how to conquer, which is uh, very important. So make sure you listen for that Trumpet Daily Radio Show. Being that it's Monday, there's also a new episode of Just the Best Literature with your host, Dennis Leap. Just got past his 100th episode. Today's 101. <laughs> so today's is uh, his 101st episode. Make sure you do listen for that, Just the Best Literature. And a new Watch Jerusalem from over the weekend as well. That's playing today. So lots of great programming. Also a new Music for Life. So we've got a lot going on here on this Monday on Trumpet Radio. 101.3 KPCG. You can follow us online if you'd like to. On Twitter at KPCGFM. And if you would like to email us, you can send any comments, questions, or concerns to comments at kpcg.fm. Also, make sure you do stop and check out thetrumpet.com today when you want your headlines, the ones that are important, and they get into the depth of the topic Make sure you stop and check out thetrumpet.com. Top story today is Sri Lanka caught in China's debt trap. This is by columnist Callum Wood. How Chinese investment can be an offensive weapon. If you've paid much attention to China over the, well, recent history, they are very much involved in different regions. They're expanding, right? They're expanding into the East China Sea. They are, uh, they have a lot of investment in a lot of nations, including the United States. And they're using it uh, as an offensive weapon. And it's brought out here in relation to Sri Lanka, caught in China's debt trap. Very important to look at and see what's happening over there. There's a debt crisis. And how does that relate to the United States? Well, we have a debt crisis too, don't we? And China is heavily involved there. China takes a long view, as uh, many historians say. And... uh, think far in advance about how to achieve their goals and their aims. At the bottom of that article, there's a short video, very informative, The Kings of the East in 90 Seconds. Can you spare 90 seconds? (laughs) Sometimes it seems hard to do, but I'm sure you can. 90 Seconds, The Kings of the East, gives you a very quick but very thorough overview of what you can expect to see happen with The Kings of the East. That's at the bottom of this uh, write-up. Top story today at thetrumpet.com. Sri Lanka caught in China's debt trap. Check that out at thetrumpet.com. You're listening to Trumpet Radio here on 101.3 KPCG. Thanks for joining us online today. Also, kpcg.fm and a live link at thetrumpet.com. If you've uh, ever read much about World War II history and the Nazis, you've no doubt heard of the Dachau concentration camp. Dachau was the first concentration camp of the Nazi party. The camp layout, building design, and organization was used as a model for all the other camps. And it became a training center for SS concentration camp guards. The words Dachau and death were synonymous with one another. And in 1944, the creation of standing cells so small and confined that a prisoner could only stand were ordered to be built. Prisoners were confined to these, and they would have to stand from three to eight days without food or water. Hard to imagine. The camp is located in Dachau, Germany. It's about 11 miles northwest of Munich, and it was in use 1933, April, until, uh, sorry, March 1933 to April 1945. That's the entire period of the Third Reich. 
And with me today, I have Rachel Culpepper, a graduate of Herbert W. Armstrong College. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And you were attending the college campus in Edstone, England. Yes. Back in 2016. And over the Thanksgiving break, you and a few other students were able to take a trip to right. a variety of locations. And you went to the Dachau camp over there in Germany. Yes. Quite a harrowing experience. Very. It was our first uh, stop on our trip. Probably the most momentous. So we kind of got it out of the way first thing. <laughs> yeah. Something that you would never forget. And so obviously, I'm assuming you read a fair bit of history or at least you, you were aware of it. Mm-hmm. So the picture you may have had in your mind of this camp, did it differ from the reality of going there? Yeah, for sure. Um, when you see pictures, they're usually, they're obviously black and white. You don't really have a 3D image in your mind, then you step in there and it's reality. And it was bigger than I thought. It was smaller than I thought. It was, it was just completely different. Well, that's interesting. So it was both. It was bigger than you thought and smaller. How so? I think smaller in the terms of what they're able to accomplish in that camp it was huge for how small it was. Yeah, that's a good point. There was a lot of uh, people that that went through there over the years. And uh, and again, it was just such a brutal, brutal place uh, to be. I forget, I didn't, I had the numbers in front of me and I just uh, moved them aside, but I think it was, it was over 200,000 mm-hmm. or so that had been through there. Um, and, and you uh, took this tour. So this is, it's sort of like, I mean, it is a, I hate to say tourist attraction, but I mean, that's, I guess, what it would be considered a a historical attraction. And so uh, what's the process of going through there? How do they take you through and what do you see and what do they explain? Or or, or is it sort of self-guided? It's self-guided. You just take the path that the prisoners would have. Um, They were obviously brought in on train so you cross the railroad tracks to get inside and you see the sign for Dachau and what they would have seen and um you enter into this it's obviously it's pretty bare now it's just this one big plot and they have the main building still set up so you can see that and they have one of the the bunkers and they have the crematorium and all that kind of still set up but all of it's a lot of it's taken down um but you walk in and you see the big the big main hall where the Nazis would have been and that's kind of like where the prisoners would go in to get like their roll call and to be written down their names and um and then their clothes taken and all of that and then from then on you you just go wherever in the park you want Mm -hmm. and what uh what did you do as far as after you kind of took that basic path, were there things you were interested in in particular that you wanted to go see and that look, you looked at? Um, the first thing I did was kind of just stand there. We all just kind of stood there for maybe like three minutes and just kind of didn't say anything. Just kind of taking it in. It was very surreal. And then we walked down the alley where, or like the lanes where um, you would have passed all of the bunkers and like I said, there was only one or two still standing and everything else was just um, bare plots, but they outlined it so you could see how many bunkers there were and there were a ton in a small area. And so we just walked down that that lane and um, t- 
towards the the back of the camp was the crematorium and we went there and um yeah yeah so i mean it's it's uh, so much different than just reading about it this is a real place and this really happened as you go through there did you sort of imagine say put yourself in the place of a prisoner and, and what that would be like I've read a lot of things and I've watched a lot of documentaries on not just Dachau, but concentration camps in general. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just crazy because we would be walking and we obviously, um, know a lot of history, but there were people there that wouldn't have necessarily, and you could just tell by their body language, people would just be normal and laughing and kind of just walking by and cracking jokes and stuff like that. And that just kind of, um, it got to me a little bit. So that made the the emotions that I was feeling even more, you know, resounding inside of me because I was just like, this place should be reverent. Like it should be like treated with, with respect. And it just wasn't with the people around. Well, that's interesting. From the world. Yeah. I suppose it depends on who, who was there at that same time and how seriously they took the history. And then, of course, if they they weren't taking the history seriously, there's also uh, that's probably a good indication that they don't think it it could ever happen again, or or you know that it's right. it's in the past and it's not a, a threat. I mean, even today, there are people that are imprisoned in certain situations. Mm-hmm. It's not like it doesn't happen, right. but it's not happening on such a massive scale right. as as we see it or we saw it back then. Um, and so uh, the the people that you went with was it um, uh, a situation where you had some pretty good conversation after the fact about what you saw and and yeah. uh, you know was that sort of a um, unifying experience seeing a tragic place like this? For sure, we got in the car and we were just still very very sobered by what we had just um, seen and experienced, and we were just talking about you know, how we can make a difference individually and collectively. And yeah, we just, we were very unified after that because we had both, I mean, we had all felt kind of like the same thing and it was just very, um, yeah, it was unifying as a group. Were you motivated to go back and read more history about this particular camp after you had been there and and had that, that uh, picture in your mind? I did. I did a little bit. Um, but I think it just set me on the track of learning more about World War II in general. I think that instance in particular, I hadn't had like the deepest love for history, but that moment kind of set, set it in uh, in motion for me, just the reality. And I was like, this is real. This is something I should know. And so ever since then, I've been really, really intrigued with just the reality of not just concentration camps of, but like individual experiences of what people went through in World War II and the Holocaust and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's important to keep that history alive because people that may have actually experienced it are dying out, right? Or or that were of that generation, and, and it's it's so bizarre that there are people that actually will deny the Holocaust today. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have footage of it. Mm-hmm. You went to the camp, you saw it, and yet some mm-hmm. people still say didn't happen or didn't happen like right. we would assume. And I think it's probably something that people just kind of hope that didn't happen or they don't really want to grasp reality because I know it's 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 very normalized for people in Germany because it's it's alongside the road and people commute and walk by it every single day. You know, it's just something that they see and it's not really it's not really something that they I don't think about anymore. 
mm-hmm. which would be understandable if you passed it every single day. But you can just tell by people's reactions and by the way pe- other people were treating it. It was just very normal. The the people that you were there, that were there at the same time you were and, and you said were kind of being a little more casual about it, um, any sense of the nationality? Were they local from that area or hard to say where they were from? Kind of hard to say. I mean, once you get into like Eastern Europe, it's kind of, yeah, you know, but um, or just Europe in general. But some were farther east from farther east. Um, some of them definitely seem like tourists like us. Yeah. But yeah. Well, that's interesting. You wrote an article about this experience. Uh, we have hope. You can find that on uh, PCOG.org. And you wrote about some of your experience visiting that. So it's a really good write-up, and I'd recommend uh, listeners to go and check it out. It's a short one, but uh, but very uh, powerful. Anytime you go and you experience something um, in person, it gives uh, good insight into uh, you know just that experience because many of us have not had the chance to go over and see any of those. And, uh, you know, like you said, it's one of those places I think a lot of us would like to see, but on another, on the other hand, maybe, you know, it would be... It, it, how would you feel about it? You know, it's not something I'd th- I wouldn't be excited to go see it. No. But yet I think it would be a valuable thing to see. I think it was very valuable. It showed, I think it gave um, a lot of us a new, not that we don't value our lives, but it kind of pushed us towards living our lives more to the fullest. Anything about it that, surpri- I mean, besides you said sort of the size of it, but anything you learned that surprised you uh, because there is so much history out there that's you know abundant but going there did you see anything where you thought wow I had no idea uh that that it was like this in the camp or this happened or that happened um honestly I think the thing that stood out to me the most that was most shocking is uh like I said it was just it was very confined for how many people they were able to kill in such a short amount of time because um Right next to the uh, where they were at uh, the like the crematorium, there a there's a patch of woods, and so like when you look at um, documentaries or read anything about the Holocaust and how people were just kind of like lined up and 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 shot, you kind of had this Im- image in mind, but in reality, it was quite small and quite close together, and the amount just thinking about the amount of people that were able to be killed and how close they were together and the amount of I think sheer fear that was in the air kind of was compounded in my mind by how close everything was together because you couldn't escape it. It was just yeah in your face for everybody, whether you're like waiting in line for something or yeah, you'd be aware of the terror of what oh, yeah. what was happening. Yeah, it is a fascinating thought because it is just a place on Earth. They, they are yeah. just trees. They are just buildings. But what happened there is what is so horrifying, and. uh yeah, really interesting to see it in person, I, I imagine, from what you're saying. So uh, right. uh, if people get a chance to go, I guess it sounds like it, it's worth doing, but uh, certainly a, quite a, a sobering experience there uh, in uh, Dachau. And again, I would recommend our uh, listeners listen or uh, go and uh, read this article, We Have Hope, My Experience from Visiting Dachau by Rachel Culpepper. Thanks for uh, sharing your experience with us. Thank you. We'll be right back to Trumpet Radio Live.
Trumpet Radio 101.3 KPCG is produced by the Philadelphia Church of God. The Philadelphia Church of God offers a library of free educational literature. More than 90 books and booklets are available, all without cost or obligation. Subjects include Christian living, history, and Bible prophecy. Literature is available in electronic and audio formats, as well as hard copies. Literature and shipping are free. The Philadelphia Church of God Literature Library can be found online at pcog.org. You're listening to Trumpet Radio on 101.3 KPCG. This is Trumpet Radio Live. I'm Dwight Falk. Thanks for being with me here today. Grant Turgeon out of town, but we will uh, catch up with him later in the week. It was a really fascinating write-up in the February edition of Time Magazine. If you're a subscriber to Time, you saw this, no doubt, with a nuclear explosion, a mushroom cloud on the front cover. And, of course, they take a little bit of a shot there at President Trump. They say making America nuclear again. And they're looking at what's happening with the American nuclear program, as well as some of the uh, global powers that are also involved in rearming or uh, ramping up their arming process. And so although they do take uh, a lot of shots at the current administration, there is some good information in between that. And I wanted to look at some of that uh, in this uh, segment today. They say more players, looser rules, everything at stake. Whenever we're talking about nuclear weapons, everything is at stake. There's a really great booklet at thetrumpet.com. We have had our last chance. And that talks about the fact that World War II really was man's last chance in terms of That war ended without global destruction, and then right after that, man tried to form some peace initiatives and councils and the United Nations and NATO and things like that. It was America's last chance for peace. It was the world's last chance. And we saw what's potential, what could potentially happen with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that if that type of power was unleashed globally, Mankind would be wiped off this earth, which Christ prophesied in Matthew 24, we would enter a time when that would be possible. That's a great proof of the timing of when that Matthew 24 prophecy begins to be fulfilled. People will say, where are we in Bible prophecy? That's a great indicator. When, when in mankind's history did we have the capability to wipe out everybody on earth? Only there at the end of World War II, and now, of course, nations have ramped up their arsenals since then, particularly during the Cold War, but but it is uh, speeding up again. And uh, they have a great picture here in this uh, Time magazine of uh, an area just outside of Las Vegas in Nye County, Nevada. They have saucer-shaped craters. They are the result of more than 1,000 underground nuclear tests performed by the Pentagon during the Cold War. I saw a really interesting documentary a few years ago about that time period, People didn't quite understand yet the dangers in even conducting tests, nuclear tests. And so Las Vegas being a tourist hotspot, people would actually go out there somewhere on the Strip or close to the Strip. They'd get a special drink. I think they I think they named it after the testing. It was like the atomic whatever it was. It was some sort of a drink. You could get an alcoholic beverage. And people would sit there and they'd watch the explosions in the distance. And, of course, obviously that's a, not a good thing to do, but, but at the time they didn't understand the, some of the dangers of that. So 
America really was uh, testing and very active at that time and, of course, has built up quite a stockpile of weapons. But this arms race now is continuing. After the Cold War, which ended in, you know, early 90s, when the former Soviet Union dissolved, people sort of thought, well, maybe, maybe this is, you know, this is the end of the Cold War now, right? We don't have the Soviet empire to worry about. But, of course, now we do. Vladimir Putin's in power and a lot of nations, not only nations of the past, such as the U.S. and Russia, which are the two big players in the, the nuclear game, I guess, but other nations now are involved. And a lot of it has to do with the breakdown of that former Soviet or union, rather. And the reason, the reason that uh, that is the case is that after the Cold War, a lot of nuclear scientists in Ukraine and other areas were out of work. They, were, they had nowhere to go. They had nothing to do. But other nations were happy to hire them. And there's a lot of indication North Korea was one of those nations to spread that technology around the world. And this write-up from Time magazine quotes William Perry, former defense secretary. He says, The new arms race has already begun. It's different in nature than the one during the Cold War, which focused on quantity and two superpowers producing absurd numbers of weapons. Today it is focused on quality and involves several nations instead of just two. The risk for a nuclear conflict today is higher than it was during the Cold War. It was higher now than it was during the Cold War because there's weapons being spread all over the earth. It's not just two nations staring at each other now with the capability of destroying the world. Now multiple nations are involved in this process. The Trump administration, it says, is planning to take a step toward developing a new generation of nuclear weapons this month in its Nuclear Posture Review, a strategy document for the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Since the end of the Cold War, the U.S., has not designed any new nuclear weapons as it has worked to scale back its strategic arsenals. A draft proposal of the 64-page document published in January by the Huffington Post included two new sea-launched weapons, one outfitted with a small atomic warhead for battlefield use. So the Trump administration has come in and they've, I think, taken a realistic look at the world on some level. And they've seen that Russia violates its treaties. They're still doing a lot, even though they claim they wouldn't. Other nations are lying about what they're doing. North Korea, obviously, is developing uh, nuclear weapons. Syria is thought to be involved. Iran, for all the talk of you know this uh, nuclear treaty, there's plenty of proof and evidence that they're heavily involved in their programs. And so the U.S. is taking a look at this. The Trump administration is taking a look at this and saying, okay, we're not just going to sit back. We're going to produce weapons as well. And I can respect the fact that they're, they're not being naive and they are realizing that you do have to be prepared for war. But, of course, when you're talking about this type of weaponry, it is the end of civilization if you start using it, at least uh, some of the weapons. Now, they are trying to develop ones that are more um, specific that they could take out a certain target and not decimate an entire city. But nevertheless, once, once the nuclear genie gets out of the bottle, as they say, who's going to put it back in? 
It is a new global arms race. The United States right now, 6,800 warheads, rebuilding all three legs of the so-called nuclear triad and refurbishing weapons labs, would cost an estimated $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years. Where is that money coming from anyway? (laughs) It's more debt, right? But that's what they're thinking about doing. 215 warheads in the UK building a fleet of dreadnought-class submarines armed with nuclear-tipped Trident II D-5 ballistic missiles expected to be in operation, operational by the 2030s. But we'll see about that. They've had problems in their programs lately. France, 300 warheads, updating the triumphant-class submarines to carry M-51 missile, which has enhanced range and accuracy. Europe's involved. Don't think they're not. That's the only place The only place in Europe where they report having weapons is in France and the U.K., nuclear weapons. But Europe is very nervous. You know why they're nervous? Well, just look on a map. On one side, you've got the United States, and even closer, you have Russia, and they're in the middle. And if there was ever a nuclear conflict, they'd be caught in the crosshairs, and they are aware of that, and they're worried, most specifically, I'm sure, about Russia. Pakistan has 140 warheads. Nuclear stockpile expected to increase over the next decade. Government has prioritized development of cruise and ballistic missile capability. Israel has 80 warheads. They don't publicly acknowledge their nuclear program, but they have weapons, and more than uh, probably people realize. How many does Russia have? 7,000 warheads. Overhaul of nuclear forces includes new submarines and modernized bombers, along with new road mobile and heavy ICBMs. Russia is heavily, heavily involved in production and trying to keep a lot of things secret, though they've been caught recently, as we'll talk about in a moment. India has 130 warheads. China, 270 warheads. And North Korea, 15 warheads. Now, again, this is these are these are estimates. I don't know that... They would know exactly what everybody has, but that's a a guess. The Trump plan also takes a new skeptical approach to nuclear arms control agreements. And they probably should. In the 2018 Pentagon budget, Trump included funding for the development of a new missile. If tested or deployed, the missile would violate a 30-year-old arms control pact with Russia, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces INF Treaty. But here's the thing. Trump is directly confronting Russia's prior violation of the treaty. Russia's been violating it anyway. So for those that are being more critical of what the Trump administration is doing, and again, nobody wants to see more nuclear weapons, but Russia's violating the treaty. What is the U.S. supposed to do? The world is not as benign as some hoped it would be, said David Trachtenberg, Defense Undersecretary for Policy, who helped oversee the new plan of the Trump administration. Well, that's right. The world's not as benign as some hoped it would be. There are problems out there. On November 8th, nearly five weeks before Trump approved research on the new missile, Secretary of Defense James Mattis assembled the defense ministers of the member countries of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, the 29-nation alliance that contained and defeated the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Convened inside a secure conference room under NATO's highest security classification, known ominously as Cosmic Top Secret, 
The Mattis briefing laid out the American intelligence case indicating Russia's violation of the INF Treaty. They caught him. Can you believe it? Russia didn't hold to their end of the bargain. U.S. intelligence agencies had captured overhead imagery and additional information that Moscow had for years been testing a treaty-violating cruise missile at the Kapustin Yar rocket launch test site in western Russia. Now the missile has been deployed with two different Russian military units, putting European capitals at risk. Notice that European capitals are at risk. If you don't think Europe is concerned, then uh, you're just not well informed, I guess. But who wouldn't be concerned? If you were sitting there in one of these European capitals and you knew you were within reach of Vladimir Putin. Serious, serious business. Don't think Europe's just sitting there. They're aware of what's happening. It says the weapon was derisively nicknamed the SSC screwdriver by NATO analysts because, quote, Russia used it to screw us, say former U.S. officials. So apologize for the colloquialism there, but that's... What has been happening? The Russian cruise missile that violated the treaty could be launched without giving allies much advanced time to determine what was coming their way. Leaders would have to quickly discern the blip on their radar screens and decide whether to respond in kind. That's the threat. Vladimir Putin. Have we seen him be aggressive? Absolutely we have. Ukraine, Georgia, other places. And now, within a few minutes he could launch a weapon to where the nation that he launched it at is going to have to look at the blip on the screen and say, what is that? And what do we do? And we only have a few minutes to figure this out. European capitals in range. Serious business. That's the world that we do live in. At the same time, U.S. and Russia are accelerating their spending on nuclear forces. The current U.S. plan would require spending $1.2 trillion to modernize the aging U.S. nuclear triad, as we mentioned before. Russia is in the midst of overhauling its nuclear forces, including new ICBMs, ballistic missile submarines, and modernized heavy bombers. It's developing a massive RS-28 Saramat ICBM, that boasts countermeasures designed to elude U.S. anti-missile systems. It's also practicing nuclear snap drills that involve missile launches from the air, land, and sea. They're developing weapons. They're practicing using them. Why? Vladimir Putin wants to rule the world. The rest of the world is not blind to the accelerating U.S.-Russia competition, it says. While the two nations account for nearly 93% of the world's nuclear arsenal, there are now nine countries with stockpiles. Not only do they have no plans for disarmament, but they aren't seeking reductions either. The number of nuclear weapons in the world has declined since the Cold War from a peak of about 70,000 in 1986 to 14,000. According to this, now I, I don't know exactly if that's true, but that's what they say according to the Federation of American Scientists. But the pace of reductions has drastically slowed. People in smaller nations see value in getting a nuclear arsenal. They want to join the club. North Korea wants to join the club, and other nations do too. Iran wants to join the club. Americans of a certain age, they say, will remember the doomsday clock maintained by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. This was in the news recently. It expresses the risk of nuclear annihilation as time remaining until midnight. 
On January 26th, that's just a few weeks ago, citing President Trump's moves. Oh, President Trump's moves, of course. How about Vladimir Putin's moves? How about the moves in North Korea? How about the moves in Iran? But no, they looked at President Trump's moves and pushed the second hand 30 seconds forward. The closest doomsday has loomed since 1953 when the U.S. and Russia first tested hydrogen bombs within months of each other. Well, that's where we are in the world today. And these smaller rogue nations are getting access to nuclear technology. And the U.S. and, of course, Russia have it as well. But where do, you ever wonder, where did these smaller nations get the technology from? Where did it come from? Who gave it to them? Well, again, you have to look back at the collapse of the Soviet Union. Those scientists from Ukraine, one, one factory in particular, um, a lot of them went to North Korea. They think. Now, they're having, they have a little bit of a hard time pinning down some of it. But they also have had North Koreans come over and visit their factory. You can go visit some of those old factories. They still have the weapons or parts of them laying around. And uh, North Koreans were very interested in going and viewing their factory. And as this one gentleman says, Victor Mosa, a retired rocket scientist, uh, he welcomed the North Koreans to his institute in eastern Ukraine, just as he would any other guests. He took them upstairs to the showroom of the Soviet satellites and rocket engines, the pride of the Institute's collection. Then they went out to the yard, looked at an array of parts for ballistic missiles on display. That was in the early 2000s. And uh, lo and behold, he now says, yeah, they were probably spies coming to find out how uh, the technology works the best that they could. The latest North Korean breakthrough, the Hosong-15 missile, was tested in November. Experts believe it could be powerful enough to lob a nuclear warhead all the way to New York City. If that makes anybody a little bit nervous, and it should. This feat of engineering, which only a few nations have ever reached, exposed a long history of failures on the part of the U.S. and its allies. It showed that the strict sanctions they imposed on North Korea failed to isolate its military. You remember in the Clinton administration... That's how they were going to solve the North Korean issue, right? We we're going to make some treaties, and there was going to be some uh, uh, sanctions and other things, and that would solve the problem. It didn't solve it. It showed, they say, that North Korea, a country so poor, so poor that its cities go dark at night to save power, was still able to acquire some of the world's most sensitive technology and hire experts who know how to use it. It showed that despite decades of non-proliferation efforts, decades, a rogue nation had obtained a weapon capable of starting World War III. Should we be worried about North Korea? Certainly. But how about Iran? How about Europe? How about Russia? There's a lot to be concerned about there. They say Pyongyang's weapons program had helped from a variety of sources. The regime's ability to enrich uranium, a key step in building a nuclear warhead, is believed to have come from Pakistan. But launching those warheads across continents would be impossible without Russian or Ukrainian technology, experts have concluded. And that, they say, is what allowed North Korea to become a truly global threat. Starting in the early 1990s, the North Korean military methodically sought to assemble its weapons program from the ruins of the Soviet missile industry. The regime's first team of foreign missile experts was recruited inside Russia 
and recruitment efforts have continued in the decades since. All of these Ukrainian scientists needed money, they needed a job, they needed someplace to go, they had a very powerful information, and so what did they do with it? Well, they went and they showed other nations how to develop the technology. The warning signs they write look painfully clear in hindsight. Are we going to be saying that in 10 years about Iran or less? As early as 1991 and as recently as 2011, North Koreans were caught trying to acquire Soviet-era missile technology, which has not always been kept under lock and key. So they don't, uh, they don't always uh, keep it that safe. They let it uh, out there for people if they're willing to pay the price for it. Ukraine has been heavily involved. This, the report that came out, this intelligence report, put Ukraine's government on the defensive, and it scrambled to find all the ballistic missile engines stored inside the country. They said, well, where, what happened to all the weapons you had? In little over a week, it tracked down about a dozen RD-250s, nearly all of them stored at this factory in Yuzmash, and announced that the investigation was closed. Nothing to see here. But what the commission did not examine was the risk of the weapons scientists finding their way to North Korea. So even if, even if the weapons or the delivery systems maybe were still in Ukraine, what about the people that made them? Where did they go? the people that had the insight on how to make these weapons. I mean, after all, what's more valuable? One weapon or one delivery system or the knowledge to make as many as you want? Obviously, the knowledge is of greater value. Yuri Zimlikov, a union organizer who has helped Yusmash workers stage strikes over unpaid wages. Again, this is that factory in the Ukraine that got shut down at the end of uh, the Cold War. And he had a lot of people there, highly paid, and then all of a sudden they, they didn't have a job. Um, it says many of them, many of these workers, have gone abroad to find work over the years, not just to North Korea, but also to Iran and to Pakistan. He said they pay big money over there. He says of these countries over dinner with a few of his fellow Teamsters. And if they want to build a rocket, they bring specialists over. It's nothing new. This isn't some new thing. This has been going on for a long time. This has been going on since the end of the Cold War. They wanted to make money. And so they were willing to go share their technology with whoever was willing to pay them. Really interesting. At the end of the Cold War, Russia wasn't as friendly to North Korea as they had been. Their uh, relations broke down a little bit. The regime's relations with the Soviets had always been uh, comradely. <laughs> it had been close. The founder of the dynasty that still rules North Korea, Kim, Ung, uh, Kim Sung, rather, was installed in power by the Soviet military in 1945 on the direct orders of Joseph Stalin. How come North Korea can be there and can be so belligerent? Well, you have to look at Russia and China. The Soviets provided Kim with tanks and artillery he used in 1950 to invade South Korea. In 1961, Moscow signed a treaty of mutual defense in cooperation with Pyongyang. So they've been very close. And then, of course, in the Cold War, they weren't as close until Mr. Putin came into office. When Vladimir Putin came into office, he changed it. He went back to the way it was because he thinks that the Soviet empire was an incredible empire that needs to uh, really rule the world. 
Less than two months after Putin took power in 2000, Russia signed a treaty of friendship and cooperation with North Korea, reviving many of the diplomatic ties that bound Moscow to Pyongyang during the Cold War. A few months later, Putin became the first Russian or Soviet leader ever to pay an official visit to North Korea. That totally revitalized our relationship, says the former Russian diplomat, Konstantin Pulikovsky, who helped steer Moscow's relations with Pyongyang. The main thing was the personal rapport between the two leaders. Well, wouldn't you know it? Vladimir Putin, North Korea, Russia, North Korea, friends again, working together again. And what about Iran? What's going on in Iran? That's another thing to keep in mind. Putin's thinking, they say, goes beyond immediate considerations of you know, what would happen if there was a war and so forth. According to one former Russian diplomat, only in the broader context of Russia's rival, rivalry with the West does any of what he's doing start to make sense, they say. In that context, North Korea is the enemy's enemy. It keeps the U.S. distracted, and that's valuable in itself. So whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran, whether it's any of these nations, Russia is happy to make sure that the U.S. stays distracted. China is too. And Europe is realizing they're going to have to fend for themselves. Really fascinating. That's the world we live in, some of the nuclear buildup going on. Make sure you go to thetrumpet.com and read. We've had our last chance to understand the seriousness of these times. That's all the time we have for today on Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining me, Dwight Falk. Have a great rest of your Monday, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.